Hi, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported our show by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, and most importantly, by donating. Spiked's content is free and it always will be. It's thanks to your donations and regular donations in particular that we've been able to keep going and growing. The Spike podcast has now grown to a point where we're able to get sponsorship. What that means for you is that there's another way that you can support us by checking out some of the deals that we're able to pass your way, but donations are still by far the best and most direct way to support us. So if you think that we're doing something right, saying what needs to be said, challenging what needs to be challenged, then please do consider starting a regular donation if you haven't already. Even £5 each month can go a long way. So if you'd like to make a donation, you can do that by going to spiked-online.com and clicking on the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button in the top right corner. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And no Ella Whelan this week. So we have Spiked editor, Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Coming up on the show, mandatory mask wearing, the great uncoupling with China and the statue wars. The evidence on face masks has always been quite variable, quite weak. Wearing a mask if you don't have an infection really reduces the risk, almost not at all. People can put themselves at more risk than less. The evidence around the use of masks by the general public is extremely weak. People who do not wear face covering will face a fine of up to £100. The UK government has made it mandatory for the public to wear masks in shops from the 24th of July, around seven months after the UK's first confirmed COVID case, around three months after the epidemic's peak, and less than a month after the pubs were allowed to reopen. This marks a significant U-turn. Back in March, adverts for masks were banned on Facebook at the behest of Public Health England. Even as recently as June the 23rd, the government was producing advice that said evidence in favour of masks was weak and any effect was likely to be small. But now masks will be compulsory, backed with the threat of a £100 fine. Brendan, what are your thoughts on this week's mask debate? I think it's really interesting. Uh, I think it tells us about where the COVID panic or the COVID crisis is at at the moment, because... You know, the scientific jury on masks and their efficacy still seems to be out. You know, it's not entirely clear that these are brilliant guards against spreading or or contracting COVID-19. Some masks seem to be better than others, but other masks have large pores. And because coronavirus is an incredibly small molecule, then it can easily get through. So there's been lots of ups and downs in terms of the scientific debate about this. It's far from clear that they are, uh, you know, a brilliant thing to wear if you want to protect yourself from this disease or stop yourself from spreading it. And yet, the response to the government's announcement has been quite extraordinary. Of course, there have been some voices saying, I don't want to wear a mask. I hate masks. I'm not going to do this. But, you know, in the kind of chattering class circles, the response has been, of course, this is what you need to do. This is a perfectly normal thing. And this is how you show you're a good citizen and you are civically minded and you care about others. 
my view is it's it's the opposite of that. I think what these masks will essentially do is really entrench the culture of fear, atomize us from each other even more, encourage us to see our fellow citizens as vectors of disease best avoided, you know, avoid small talk, avoid chit chat, don't smile at people, don't look at people. That's the impact I think the masks will have. They will exacerbate some of the worst trends of the lockdown era without it being clear that there will be health benefits. So I think it will have a detrimental impact making these mandatory in shops, making them mandatory elsewhere will make things even worse, could slow down the retail recovery and the economic recovery, and definitely slow down the social recovery, which is what we really need after four months of being locked away from each other. Tom? Well, I thought it's just been really interesting this week how a lot of lockdown fanatics, people who've really embraced the mandatory masks thing, have tried to suggest that those who are critical or sceptical of it are like starting some kind of culture war, that they're just kind of culture warriors mm. um, who out of some kind of like cussed, shy Tory libertarianism just refuse to go along with something which could obviously really help get on top of this disease. And it's just so striking because it's just fundamentally not true. If anyone's starting a culture war over masks, it's these lockdown fanatics who have suddenly, you know, out of, it seems to me, not having really surveyed the evidence, not having really engaged with the arguments, just embraced them because it allows them to take shots and pot shots at politicians and commentators that they don't like anyway, as well as to express their general, you know, disgust with the general public, you know, who they do see as co-idiots and all the rest of it. Because, you know, people who are critical of masks seem to me to have pretty clear concerns, you know, one of which is the efficacy of them, which, as Brendan says, the jury is very much still out on this subject. You know, even people who are advocating for masks, these kind of non-surgical masks, cloth masks, face coverings that you use in the community, the best they can really say for them is that there could be some benefit and it seems to me that even if there is a small benefit, that could easily be wiped away by some of the concerns that even the government had previously been raising, that if you don't apply them properly, if you don't wash your hands before you put them on, if you contaminate them, then any potential benefit could easily be lost. And also the civil liberties concerns. I mean, the fact that by government edict will be required to wear these things in certain spaces, the fact that there are some people who are concerned about that, who feel that if you're going to issue that kind of order, if you're going to infringe on civil liberties in that way, that it should meet quite a high evidentiary bar at the very least. That's just completely dismissed as entirely illegitimate, which I think tells us something about how a lot of these kind of culture warriors on the other side of this argument, shall we say, have so little interest in freedom, so little belief in it. Um, and it's also an entirely legitimate concern to have if you think about the way in which civil liberties have been cast aside in this whole process. You know, the lockdown started off as a three-week thing to protect the NHS and it quickly became something which was how we manage the disease indefinitely. And, you know, when you consider the concerns now being brought up about a potential second wave, you know, more fear-mongering modelling coming out, talking about 120,000 deaths during the winter months, you do have to ask yourself, you know, how long is this going to go on? But the people who are starting a culture war over this are not the people who are raising what seem to me to be completely legitimate concerns. It's the people who have just overnight embraced masks, and mandatory masks in particular, because it just expresses a series of their own pre-existing prejudices, it feels like. Yeah. And I think the civil liberties point is absolutely key. I mean, you could you could have said back in March that mandatory mask wearing was a minor imposition, but not after it has come after the biggest destruction of civil liberties that has ever happened in, in our democratic history. It's yet one thing that is tying us to this pandemic that is preventing us from moving on from it and going back 
to normal. The number of people in the country that are believed to be infected at any one time is currently at 0.03%. But people are talking about this masks issue, just as they talked about the pubs issue, as if we were still back at the peak back in April when thousands of people were dying every day. There are so many people, particularly among the kind of lockdown fanatics, who just will not accept that this virus is going to go away. And there will be a point at which we can go back to normal. But instead, it gets dragged on and on and on. And, you know, we have to find new ways of adapting to it. And I think, you know, a lot of people quite rightly have had enough of the new normal already. And and you can see that in the response to masks, which, you know, as I said before, might be a small thing in and of itself, but piled on to everything else. Yes, it is a pretty big deal. Brendan? What has become really clear through the masks controversy is that what we're going through now has has really has nothing to do with COVID-19 anymore. As you say, it's pretty much fizzled out. There's a very small number of infected people. The very high daily death rates we were seeing a couple of months ago, we have nothing like that now at all. And in a normal society, we would be celebrating that. We would have a, a COVID liberation day. People would be going back out. There'd be more confidence. People would be encouraged to do all the things they used to do and th- that they used to enjoy. But we don't live in a normal society. And, and our COVID response is very clear now. It's not being driven by the facts of the disease, which we know a great deal more about now than we did four months ago. And we know that it, it's not infecting vast numbers of people. We know that very small numbers of people die from it. We know that those people tend to be in a particular demographic. And despite the greater knowledge we have, there is this lingering, poisonous, divisive culture of fear which really is encouraging us to see each other as diseased. I mean, that's really what this boils down to. And I think lockdown fanaticism is driven fundamentally by a very antisocial view of other people, by a contempt for the masses, by this horror at what comes out of people's mouths and people accidentally breathing on you or coughing on you. It's like a hyperversion of the kind of atomization we've been seeing growing over the past few years anyway. If you cast your minds back to when the pubs reopened, there was a, actually a similar discussion, just heaps and heaps of contempt on people who went to pubs. You know, stupid, vulgar, horrible people. They're going to kill each other. They're going to kill themselves. And I think that's going to go on for a while. And it's not linked to COVID-19. It increasingly looks like COVID-19 is simply the disguise that snobbery and elitism now wears. And it's the way in which people express those horrible views. The most striking thing for me is that very often, the most passionate lockdown fanatics seem to come from the left, including the Corbynista left. You know, these are the people who've been telling us for the past year that Boris and his government are the most fascistic government we've ever had. And yet now they get down on their knees and say, please tell us what to do, daddy. Put the mask on. Don't let us go outside. Lock us up. Enforce more and more rules. And you, you find yourself thinking either they didn't believe he was a fascist really in the first place or They've so thoroughly lost the plot that they are now begging a fascist to tell them how to live their every (laughs) moment. So the whole thing is surreal. But I think the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is this masks debate is not about masks and it's not about COVID. It really expresses some deep underlying tensions in British society, primarily coming from the kind of opinion forming elites. And it's really worth pushing back against those. Tom, did you want to make a final point? Well, I just think that point you made about lockdown fanatics not being able to let COVID go is quite an important one, I think, because throughout this process, not through any 
you know, studied opinions based on the evidence, but just through the kind of climate of fear that was whipped up and the kind of threat of COVID. There's just been a section of the commentariat and the political class who have able to claw back some level of moral legitimacy through which they can pose against what they see as either like a recklessly libertarian, uncaring government and a stupid public who will go out and infect each other at the slightest easing of restrictions. I think that's one of the reasons why they can't let this stuff go, why they can't even, you know, admit to the fact that, as you say, according to these recent ONS surveys, you know, 0.03% of infection rate in the community, that's like one in 4,000. If you think about the number of people you tend to encounter on any given day, the chances of actually coming into contact with someone who is infected at this point, and then the chances of them actually infecting you are so incredibly low. But they cling to it because it has become a very flimsy form of moral legitimacy that they've been able to carve out for themselves. And I think, you know, with this discussion, it's so clear that this decision was attempt to try and send a message to try and make people feel more comfortable about going out. I completely agree with Brendan. I think it's going to have the opposite effect at precisely the time where things should be getting back to normal. It's going to make them feel like they're abnormal. And there's just a very simple way out of this, which is for the government to present the evidence, to give us the case, to issue guidance if they want, but to allow us as individuals and as communities, because this is affecting different places to different degrees, to make up their minds for themselves. But not only the lockdown fanatic set, but even increasingly the government just seem not to trust us to be able to make those decisions, even at a time where, as you say, Fraser, the threat of COVID such as it is, has really receded. Right. Just before we move on, I want to tell you a bit about ExpressVPN. We've all wanted to search for something or visit a website that we'd probably rather other people didn't know about. Most of you are likely thinking, well, why don't I just use incognito mode? There's a good reason. Incognito mode alone does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why, even when I'm at home, I use ExpressVPN when I'm online. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Virgin or BT or Verizon or whoever. In the US, ISPs can legally sell your data and in the UK, they're obliged to hold it for security purposes. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realise ExpressVPN is running. It's on seamlessly in the background and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link expressvpn.com slash spiked and you can get an extra three months free on a one year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash spiked. ExpressVPN.com slash spiked to learn more. Now back to the Spike podcast. This week, the government announced that telecoms companies would be banned from buying new Huawei 5G kit and that all of Huawei's equipment would be stripped from mobile networks by 2027. Back in 2015, the Conservative government hailed a golden age of Sino-British relations. But the Huawei ban signals a significant chilling of those relations. Questions are also being asked about China's involvement in British nuclear power. 
The US, under President Trump, has been waging a trade war against China, and following the emergence of the novel coronavirus in China, the war of words between the two superpowers has intensified even further. To tell us a bit about what's really happening in this great uncoupling with China, I'm joined down the line by Lee Jones, reader in international politics at Queen Mary University and co-editor of the book The Political Economy of Southeast Asia. Obviously, people are highlighting some of the more totalitarian aspects of China, you know, talking about repression of the Uyghurs or repression of Hong Kong. There's complaints that China steals Western intellectual property. But these things have been known about or have been going on for some time. Why do you think it's now that they are in the spotlight a lot more? I think there's a number of different factors, but you know, a huge part of it, I think, is the, the stance that President Trump has taken since his election in launching the, the trade war with China, which I think has galvanised a lot of people to bring up grievances that, that, as you say, has been around a long time. The idea that China is an authoritarian regime that oppresses its people is not a new one. But those voices have been silenced in the interest of doing business with China. And I think the question is, what has changed? Two things I think have changed. One is that the, the Chinese government has itself become more authoritarian in recent years. The rise of Xi Jinping means that there's much more centralization. Dissent is much more rigidly policed. Ideological control is a lot stiffer. There's a kind of growing sense of paranoia about the CCP's regime security and so on. And that that's real. That is definitely happening. And so we see a much tougher line in Hong Kong, for example. We see a much tougher line in, in Xinjiang. So that's real. On the other side, what's happening on the side of the West is that the interests of the most dominant fractions of capital, I think, are starting to be challenged in a serious way by China. So intellectual property rights are something really crucial and fundamental to the profits of the most powerful companies in the United States. You know, if you look at Apple, for example, we, we all know that iPhones are, are built in China. But does that mean that China gets all the money from exporting iPhones? Absolutely not. It gets about between 1% and 2% of the final retail price of an iPhone. And the rest goes to a host of intermediaries, some who build the components that get assembled in China. Uh, but the lion's share, about 57%, goes to Apple. And Apple doesn't produce anything. It doesn't manufacture anything. That's all done by Foxconn. But it can control the intellectual property. Now, that's where its colossal wealth comes from. If you imagine that replicated across all kinds of sectors and products, the fact that China is increasingly stealing IPR, which it is definitely doing, and trying to manufacture its own indigenous capacity, so-called Made in China 2025 agenda, to climb up the value-added chain, that's a really serious threat to the long-term profitability of these giant tech companies, which are essentially in a rent-seeking position, right? They've basically invented something and they want to keep extracting profit from it indefinitely. And the way they do that is by monopolizing intellectual property rights. And China's just not playing by that game. So there has come a kind of crunch point in the compatibility between the American growth model and the Chinese growth model. Those two things have come into conflict after being relatively compatible for a long time. The interest of capital, that is, on both sides not always been in the interests of workers on both sides, to say the least. So I think these are the kind of big, kind of grinding tectonic plates that are now kind of bashing against each other and causing these volcanic eruptions. Obviously, that that is not 
what is expressed by politicians. That's not how they describe what they're doing. Their rhetoric is is one of kind of belligerence against China. It's very we need to take a tough a tough stand against China. What do you make of that kind of um, rhetoric? And is it productive? Is it potentially dangerous? I think it is potentially dangerous. It's clear that some politicians want to launch a new Cold War with China. And in this country, the sort of cheerleader in chief for a new Cold War is Tom Tugendhat, who's the Tory MP who chairs the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. And he really has sort of spearheaded this approach and he's done various inquiries. And, you know, if you read the reports, for example, about Chinese influence in in Britain and universities and so on, it's pretty thin gruel. There's not a lot of solid evidence. I mean, I'm not to, not to say we shouldn't investigate and we shouldn't be wary of this, but so far I'm yet to be convinced, for example, that you know China's tentacles are reaching into our universities and, and fundamentally, you know, corrupting them. I think they're corrupted by all kinds of things that are mostly domestic to the UK. So there, there are certain people I think are trying to make their careers out of this to try to sort of develop an image and a stance for themselves. There are others who are, you know, kind of ideological true believers. They, they really don't like what China is doing. And that's it's entirely fair enough. I mean, the CCP regime is, is, is pretty horrible, to be fair. And they can object to it for all kinds of reasons. But China is a, is a major power. It's a member of the UN Security Council. It's a nuclear power. It's a dominant military power in East Asia. And the question is, is it better to have you know, constructive and cooperative relations with a country like that? Or is it best to be belligerent? And, you know, my line has always been that we should approach China with no illusions. China is not a friend of human rights. China is not a friend of the working people. China is not anything to be admired or it's not progressive, you know, that we should be clear about that. But I also think it's not this sort of monolithic entity that's bent on world domination. I think it's actually a lot weaker than people think. It's a lot more fragmented and disorganized internally than people think. And I think there's a risk of responding to it as if it is much more powerful, much more threatening, much more belligerent than it really is, which then draws us into increasing conflict between major powers, which is frankly not good for the international system. And finally, I just wanted to ask about the the pandemic. China has faced a lot of criticism initially for its handling of the virus for, you know, it's accused of covering things up, not telling the truth about the dangers it poses. I mean, what what's your impression been of, you know, China's handle on coronavirus um, so far at this point? Well, I think it's important to disaggregate China. Like I said a moment ago, it's a lot more fragmented and disorganised internally than you would imagine from just looking at it from the outside. It seems to be this very tightly controlled authoritarian regime. And so, you know, if if some Chinese official does something, it's because the Chinese leadership want, wants them to do it. And that is, frankly, often not the case. So at the beginning of the pandemic, before it was clear what was really going on, it was certainly clear that there were different agencies at the local level operating across purposes. So you had medics were trying to blow the whistle and say, you know, we need to do something about this. This is serious. Public Security Bureau who are mostly concerned with internal stability and regime security, were trying to hush it up, you know, and arrested some of these doctors and so on. And that represents the way that different agencies do operate at at cross-purposes. But basically, as soon as the Chinese leadership really understood what was going on, there was a decision by the Politburo 
And then the full force of the central state kind of bore down. And you can see actually online, Discipline Inspection Commission descended on these areas and really lambasted local officials for covering up, lying, you know, exaggerating positive news, bureaucratism and this kind of thing. And so it's clear that there were problems at the beginning, but then there was a central crackdown and then things moved in a, in a more powerfully containing direction. There were also some weaknesses in cooperation with the World Health Organization, and that's leaked out subsequently. And again, it shows that the internal disorganization, you had some laboratories that had basically sequenced the genome ahead of the central government laboratory. And the central government laboratory refused to allow these other labs to release the details because they wanted to take the credit for it and get additional research funding and this kind of thing. So there was this competition between different parts of the state that delayed information being released. But, you know, in the the grand scheme of things, we're talking about a delay of, you know, days or weeks, really. It's very, very different to the SARS outbreak in 2003, when the Chinese government took a decision to try to conceal this and hush this up for months. That's quite different this time. There was some local fragmentation and and bad behaviour. And then the central government got wind of it and quickly cracked down and bore down on it. And I think, you know, by and large, that, that is a very different response to 2003, which reflects changes in the party state since then. The other thing is that people like to blame China because it distracts attention from their own shortcomings and weaknesses. And that's obviously most apparent in the United States. But I think it could become apparent in the UK too, you know, to say, oh, it's China's fault. They unleashed the virus on the world. Why would you hold the despotic government of a developing country responsible for the health of and well-being of your own domestic population. That's ridiculous. So if, the, if these Western healthcare systems were better prepared and accountable in the first place, then this virus wouldn't have reached the havoc that it has. So there's a, there's a scapegoating going on here. It's not like China's totally blameless. It's not like that. But there is this attempt to sort of externalise responsibility. And I think if things get more and more dicey in the UK, I think we could see some kind of move in that direction here as well, an attempt to sort of spread blame around rather than take responsibility for all the, the shortcomings, which are definitely domestic in nature, as they are in the United States. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. The toppling of slave trader Edward Colston's statue last month unleashed a wave of iconoclasm, some of it officially sanctioned by the Mayor of London and other politicians. Earlier this week, the artist Mark Quinn erected a statue of a Black Lives Matter protester on the plinth where Colston once stood. 
but it was removed by the council within 24 hours. Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, said it was up to the people of Bristol to decide who should replace the Colston statue. Tom? Well, I thought it was really interesting. First of all, I think the response from the Mayor of Bristol, Marvin Rees, was completely spot on. You know, because even though when Mark Quinn installed this statue of the Black Lives Matter protester, he said that it was just an art piece, it was a contribution to debate, but there was always the chance that that could easily have just taken its place, you know, in perpetuity, just because no one wants to be seen to be, you know, challenging the Black Lives Matter movement to be taking down um, this far more positive statue as, as opposed to Colston. So I thought his response, which is to say, even referring to Quinn as a London-based artist, saying he can come and pick up his statue from the museum and making clear <laughs> that this is a discussion for everyone in Bristol, from the people who delighted in the toppling from that statue to the people who agreed that the statue should go but didn't agree with the way it was done, through to the people who actually feel a bit of a loss, given the fact that something that was part of the furniture, as it were, of their city is disappeared. I thought that was really spot on. But despite the fact that it's already gone, and despite the fact that, you know, Mark Quinn in particular made a point of saying he didn't intend for it to be permanent, what I thought was quite interesting about it was it did sum up something about the Black Lives Matter movement, which is an element of kind of narcissism to it, firstly. You know, that was a statue basically that was not actually celebrating any clear-cut achievements, but just a toppling of the previous statue, you know, Mm. kind of expresses a focus on a kind of narcissism on the on the behalf of these protests to some extent, but also the kind of negativity and the obsession with symbols. And I just thought it was so interesting because, you know, around the time that Colston was originally toppled, there was this petition doing the rounds to put up a statue to Paul Stevenson, who led the Bristol bus boycott. And yet this was for a time, potentially the actual thing that was going to replace it was just something commemorating the toppling of the statue itself, I thought was quite telling. And there's something about that in the movement in general, you know, all these constant refrains for us to educate ourselves. It's all about reading books that are written about the past five years. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a kind of tremendous presentism to it, which I think is bred of the fact that there is this kind of strange moral authority they think they have. They think they've got absolutely everything right themselves. And despite the fact there's always this discussion about history, so often it's a valorization of protesters in the present, you know, just for being on the right side of history in some vague sense. So yes, I think it was good that it was removed so quickly. It should be a decision for the people of Bristol themselves. But even though it was a temporary installation, as it turned out, only just for 24 hours, I think it did express something about this movement. And I, th- I think, you know, to replace the Colston statue with someone like Paul Stevenson, to commemorate the anti-racist movements of the past that, you know, have made material gains, there's a reason they don't particularly want to do that. And that's because it challenges their ideas about race in the present. You know, there is an extreme fatalism, a kind of race fatalism to how these movements, particularly Black Lives Matter, view race. You know, they really do say that nothing has improved or the problems of today can still be traced back to slavery and colonialism and that the past is still making people suffer in the present. Hence the reason that they want to destroy these kind of symbolic manifestations of the past. So yeah, it is interesting to kind of ponder on that and think, would there be any heroes that Black Lives Matter would find actually acceptable today? Or do we have to only look at the current wave of protesters? Because many of the leading figures of this movement are very critical of people like Martin Luther King and stuff like that, you know, because of his views on colourblindness, which is now seen as very passe and outdated. Brendan, your thoughts? Yeah, I really agree about the presentism of this movement and the speed with which they celebrated themselves and something they did five minutes ago, i.e. tearing down the Edward Colson statue. It was really striking. And it's what George Orwell referred to as the endless present. You know, in 1984, he says, history has stopped and all that exists is an endless present in which the party is always right. And that's just what I thought of when I saw this statue commemorating 
what was in fact just a very fleeting moment that took place literally a couple of weeks ago. And even more importantly than that, the way in which observers were celebrating it as some wonderful moment, uh, as if it was a great historic moment, when in fact it was, in my view, a rather rash protest, incoherent, which ended with the toppling of a statue that I think was probably not a very wise thing to do, even though very few people would defend Edward Colston himself, of course. I thought the great irony, of course, is that I thought it was a very imperious statue. I think, you know, the, the irony is that Black Lives Matter protesters and lots of contemporary commentators, they will say that the problem with statues of old historical figures is that they're staring down at us and telling us that black people are inferior or our historic achievements were wonderful, even if they weren't. You know, and that might well be true, although, of course, there was a great deal of ambiguity in Bristol about the Edward Colston statue for a long time. So it's not as if people were bowing down to that statue and worshipping a slave trader. <laughs> That's completely incorrect. But this new statue that Mark Quinn put up, I thought that was actually incredibly imperious. And it was very openly about re-educating the public. If you look at Mark Quinn's statement about it, he talks about the need for white people to think about their role in society and their role in history. He talks about the need for greater racial awareness. He uses all of these contemporary phrases. So it was a statue designed to hector the public and to say, particularly to ordinary white people in Bristol, you should be ashamed of yourselves. You need to think about your role in the world. So it was a it was a very old fashioned, almost like Roman era style statue, which was about re-educating the public. And this isn't a first for Mark Quinn. If you think about his probably his most famous statue, which was the statue of Alison Lapper, the disabled artist, which was on the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square for a, a couple of years. It's an amazing statue. It's, it's huge, colossal piece of work. But if you read a, around that, it was, uh, you know, statements that came from Ken Livingstone at the time and from Mark Quinn himself and others. That statue is very much about confronting ordinary people with disability. And, and the, the suggestion was it would force ordinary Londoners, who are all deeply prejudiced, of course, to rethink their prejudices and to see the world in a different way. So the use of public art or public monuments as a means of basically looking down on the public, that is not the preserve simply of the old stuffy royal family and military statues and all those other things which are everywhere in London and Bristol and other cities. It's also being done by these new culture warriors. So I thought that it was completely correct to take that Mark Quinn statue down. I thought the Bristol mayor made an excellent point when he talked about this London artist coming up here and and sticking his statue up. Also, it's very notable that Mark Quinn gave exclusive access to the event to The Guardian rather than to the Bristol Post or any kind of local media. It was a London event. It was a London imposition from the new elites on a provincial city. So it was actually a very elitist thing, and it summed up the elitism at the heart of the contemporary culture war that's coming from Black Lives Matter and various other movements. And I think the mayor taking it down was incredibly wise, and I hope now they have a proper democratic discussion in Bristol about what the people think should be there. Tom? Well, it's just so clear that so much of this is not really about history. You know, the statues wars, the battles over 
previous authors, previous political figures, etc., is always presented as a reckoning with history when it becomes increasingly clear that first of all, these people don't know anything about history. You know, I mean, you saw that in the US with the battles over the Emancipation Monument, both the one in Washington, DC, there's also a copy of it in Boston, which was actually removed, depicting a slave breaking his chains in front of um, Abraham Lincoln, an amazing monument, which in DC's case was actually paid for by freed slaves. And the desire to bring this down, I thought, really summed up the complete dearth of historical knowledge amongst these people. On the one hand, as you say, Fraser, it definitely expresses um, that discomfort they have with accepting that things have changed, accepting that great leaps forwards have been achieved, because that does upset their narrative. But I think it also expresses the paucity of their ambition in the present. You know, that statue in Bristol that was only up for 24 hours, I think really expressed this obsession with symbolism, this presentism, this desire not to overcome any particular barriers, but to be seen in some sort of sense. You hear that a lot in kind of identitarian writing this idea about representation but not representing any particular achievement or any or any particular goal or actually setting out a particular vision for society it's incredibly narcissistic it's incredibly stunting and the main aim of it seems to be just this vague awareness raising <laughs> or this vague hmm. um, assertion of a victim identity with no actual endpoint attached to it so in the one hand it speaks to how in many respects, limited this movement is, but also how if we keep giving ground to it, we're never really going to get anywhere. Because on the one hand, they don't want to accept that any change has taken place whatsoever, even to the point of actually denigrating figures who were responsible or forgetting figures who were responsible for creating very great and transformative change. But also there's actually not that much in the present that they seem to want. They don't. There's not any clear concrete goals. And I think that's something that we've seen kind of come to a point with this Bristol statue issue. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.